The clean tech sector is a critical part of making the energy transition possible. On today's special episode of The Energy Gang, we're going to be talking about one of the longest established companies in the sector and explaining how it fits into the bigger picture of investing to reduce emissions and tackle climate change. ITRON has cemented itself as one of the largest providers of energy, water and smart city management solutions in North America over its 45-year-long history. It's perhaps best known for smart metering systems, and it's committed to advancing the ability to save electricity and integrate renewables into the system. On today's special episode of The Energy Gang, I'm very pleased to be joined by Tom Dietrich, who is the Chief Executive Officer of ITRON. Thank you. And by Tom Rand, who's the co-founder and managing partner of Arcturn Ventures, a global cleantech venture fund. Good to be here. Tom is an advocate for the role of businesses in tackling the climate threat. We're going to talk about the state of the energy system, the reality of climate disruption, and how to accelerate the growth of the cleantech sector and the decarbonisation of the global energy industry. Uh, Tom and Tom, thank you both very much for joining us today. So to get us started, and just for the benefit of listeners who might not know you already, it'd be great to just hear a little bit about what your businesses do and your backgrounds in the energy industry. Maybe Tom Dietrich, to start with you, tell us a little bit about ITRON and the part that it plays in the energy business. Sure, sure. I'll start with a bit about me just to get that out of the way. I grew up in the technology business through engineering organizations in telecom and networking and, and semiconductors. But about six years ago, a, a colleague of mine introduced me to, uh, to ITRON, and I really fell for the mission of the company, uh, the, the idea of creating a more resourceful world, uh, really applying technology like networking and analytics uh, to save energy and water. That, that, that spoke to me, and I said, sign me up. So uh, ITRON, as, as a company, does exactly that. We serve utilities and cities all around the world. Uh, with products and services. And, and those products and services are, are really targeted at creating more efficient, safer, and smarter electricity, energy, water systems. Um, the, the nature of the, the company, uh, we've been around for about 40 years now, but uh, I really think the best is yet to come as, as, as the technology that is available really has the ability to fulfill that mission and, and change the world, change societies that we live in. And to give people an example in energy, then specifically of the kind of things that you do, what would some of your key products and services be? We are probably best known for uh, smart metering. So the idea of uh, that, that meter that's sitting on the, the side of the house uh, measuring electricity so that your utility can, can send you a bill at the end of the month. That's sort of the very lowest level uh, common denominator product in what we do in most cases. But the, the idea has moved much past the notion of sending a bill to a, a consumer at the end of the month. It really is about understanding what's happening in the electricity grid. Where are there safety issues? Where are there opportunities to advance the ability to save electricity? How do we integrate renewables into uh, the, the system? How do we reduce losses in, in the system, whether they be electricity or or, or water. Uh, 30% of all water that is cleaned and pumped is lost before it, uh, it gets to a consumer. I can't think of any other industry, well, maybe any other legal industry in which 30% of the product is lost on the way to uh, uh, a consumer and it still thrives. That, that tells you that there's so much efficiency that we can wring out of these systems and do a much better job of saving our natural resources and really creating that more resourceful world, which is our purpose as a company. 
Yeah, that really is a, a shocking statistic, isn't it? It's amazing. So, Tom Rand, turning to you, tell us a bit about yourself. What's your background in energy and, and what do you do at Arcturn? Sure. So I've, I've been an entrepreneur uh, all my life. I mean, I started out to sort of date myself back in the 90s. I helped invent voicemail. So when DOS was the platform of choice for industrial computing, we built a lot of systems all over North America and Europe. So I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Did a bunch of things in, in between there and now. I, I built a low-carbon hotel, uh, which was the subject of a TED Talk about the reductions in emissions we can make in the built environment. And now Arcturn. Arcturn is a global venture capital platform um, investing in, in climate-busting technologies. But really, you know, I, I've been an overeducated observer of, of climate risk all my life as well. It terrifies me. I mean, as a, as a young man, I remember being around the family table and my table pounding discussions why aren't they listening to the scientists you know so it, it, it's it's been a, a front center for me for all my life and really i i, I wrote a book called climate capitalism really because i'm frustrated by two things i'm frustrated on the one hand by a lack of really tangible ambition on behalf of the business community i mean there are leaders out there for sure but in general they're just haven't stepped up for decades as a matter of fact they've been recalcitrant and on the same side there's a deep suspicion in the environmental movement of, of markets and capitalism, which I think is, is both incoherent and not very helpful. So the book sort of adds to my professional life. It sort of brings the two together in talking about solutions and capital and so on. And, and really it's a rejection of both sides of that argument, right? A warning that incrementalism won't do. So the business community, stop talking about incrementalism. It's a distraction. And a plea to, the, to sort of the, the, the emerging left, the emerging young environmentalists who are becoming more politically active that throwing out capitalism is incoherent. Uh, we don't have time to wait for the revolution. So, so let's just get on and, and use the tools we've got to solve this problem. A really compelling argument, I think. I remember once getting into an argument on Twitter with a leading environmental thinker who should probably remain nameless, who said that people are going to have to choose between capitalism and the climate. And my response was, I'm sorry, that's just, I mean, apart from, I think, being fundamentally factually wrong, we don't face that kind of opposition. It's also just really bad to present it to people as that kind of dichotomy, because if you tell people that, they're going to choose capitalism, actually. And that's a real tactical and strategic mistake, I think, on, on the part of the environmental movement. Yeah, I mean, we, li we live in a democracy, and people have jobs, and they have responsibilities. And the notion that we're going to build a big enough political tent to reject the economic system in which we all swim uh, is, is politically unfeasible. And again, I think incoherent. I mean, I mean, capitalism comes in many flavors. Sweden's a capitalist country. Canada's a capitalist country. Um, you know, it's really a matter of working to build an economic system that responds to climate risk for sure. But you do that inside economic activity, not by rejecting economic activity. And as you said then, so you've also had a tough message for the business community, which is that there's been a lack of ambition a lack of urgency, people have not been acting in the way that they should. If you're thinking about addressing the business community and saying to people, there are these clear steps that you should be taking to be more ambitious, to act with the urgency that's required, what do you say to people when you're kind of advising people or kind of trying to steer people towards practical decisions that are going to have positive outcomes for the climate? What should they be doing? Well, first of all, I mean, success is measured now by one thing, which is reducing your, your GHG emissions. That's it. The, the time for talk is over. The patience for talk is over. The patience for, for making this a political football is over. So it's an empirical question. It's a practical question. I mean, the good news is, and this is where, you know, I, I trons in the middle of this. I mean, the good news is you, you can't, once a technological genie is out, you can't stop it, right? So technological, technological cost curves do one thing over time, they go down. And their performance curves do one thing over time. They go up. 
And whether anybody cares about it or not, that clean tech revolution, a distributed solid state energy system predicated on technology and not resources is coming to our shores. It's coming to Canada's shores, the US's shores, China's shores, whether you like it or not. You couldn't have stopped the mechanization of agriculture if you tried. As an incumbent, as a policymaker, you couldn't stop the digitization of communications if you tried. And so that's the good news, right? That this technological curve is, is happening. It's real, costs are coming down, performance is going up. And so the electrification of everything is a real possibility. The costs of compliance are coming down very quickly. So the good news is, you know, we have the option now to deploy this technology at scale. The question is, will we deploy it organically at a scale that suits us? Or will we deploy it in a non-organic fashion at a scale and pace that's commensurate with climate risk? Um, and Tom D, you'll have, I mean, you're in the middle of this. You're, you're developing exactly those kinds of technologies, right? So encouraging your customers to move faster is in your self-interest, but it also happens to be what we need to do collectively. And that's a dance between public and private uh, forces. I think that there's a very pragmatic piece to this uh, as well. I don't take anything away from the perspective that uh, Tom R, just to avoid confusion of too many Toms on the call, uh, shared in terms of once something starts, that snowball does run down the, uh, the, the hill. Uh, sorry for the, the bad metaphor given climate change, but uh, the, the very, very notion of, of the macro forces that cities and utilities, using them as an example, are, are up against. Infrastructure that has been with uh, cities and governments and utilities for, for uh, 30, 40, 50, 100 years is aging and breaking down. The, the notion that that infrastructure is, is safe and secure against modern cybersecurity threats, uh, the fact that it is rigid and the world is changing much, much faster uh, than, than the technology was ever contemplated to deal with. The idea of integrating renewables into to the network is, is something that is, is, is not possible in the, in the current environment. Climate disruption is real. The environmental challenges, whether you choose to acknowledge them or not, just statistics say there are four times more annual billion-dollar climate disasters now than there was just 30 years ago. So fires and floods and extreme heat and extreme cold, ice storms in Texas, for God's sake, where I live, is, is something that was unheard of, and it's it's happening. So society doesn't stand up against that without in investment. And from a social standpoint, is the third major trend that I think is really important to focus on. When you ordered your dinner last night from Uber Eats or whatever your delivery service was, you knew in real time where the driver was, when they picked up the food from the restaurant and when they were on the way to, to the door of your flat, how far away they were, how much it was going to cost, what was the license plate number. You knew all of that in real time. You could pull out that little computer in your pocket and you could look at it and say, that person is you know, this far away from, from my flat right now. That real-time engagement with, with a service is something that we as consumers have gotten very used to. When was the last time you had that same relationship with a utility? The last time you probably dealt with your electricity company might have been when you ring them up because the lights are off and you're complaining bitterly about, you know, when is my light coming back on so I can, so I, I, get, I can get back to work because I'm working from home. That is a very negative consumer engagement compared to the positive parts of, of engagement that we've seen before. So climate, environmental, social, infrastructure, all of those are practical realities that, that our society faces today and, and is dealing with. 
And that is the undercurrent that makes that inevitable snowball rolling down the mountain that Tom talked about. The technology is available. Let's get it into production. Let's get it out into the field to go make it happen. Yeah, and I, just to, to sort of put a cap on that, I, I think not only is it going to get smarter and your relationship with utility, you, the utility is going to become much snazzier and high tech, but the real challenge in terms of the climate stuff is we also have to roughly double electrical production if we electrify those, those parts of the economy that we know we need to. Uh, transportation, a lot of industrial heat, you know, production of hydrogen on site for industrial heat, for example, for the high-end stuff. That's roughly going to double the amount of energy utilities have to deliver uh, to the end user. So there's a, there's a real challenge that, that, that comes with the smarts that are also getting developed. It's just a muscle issue. There's twice the amount of electrons have got to flow and the utilities have to be enabled to take some risks in being able to deliver the intelligence that we need as well as doubling in size, right? Utilities don't take risks. That's not their job. Keep the lights on. But now we're saying, okay, double production, make it smarter, and, and, and keep the lights on. Is that a problem for you? And that's going to happen in 10, 15 years. So this is what technology needs to underpin and the role of the regulator is to really help enable it and give some breathing room for utilities to be able to play a little because they've got to be able to change the way they operate in real time. Building on that, that example of the, the transportation revolution to, to go to, to more EVs, more electric vehicles in the network, uh, every EV is kind of like a, a house that just randomly roams around the, the territory and, and plugs in now and then and turns on from a, the, the view of, of the grid, right? Uh, houses used to be static and they used to be predictable and you knew when they were gonna be on and off uh, uh, with pretty good predictability. Um, uh, power signals tend to be, or usage tends to be uh, reasonably understood so you can manage generation. Well, EVs fundamentally change that from a location point of view. What, how much charge do you need where? and when it's going to happen. Um, the, the, the idea of a fleet of EVs, all those school buses coming back in the evening, back to the yard, needing to plug in, think about what that looks like. You, you know you want to have them charged up the next day to, to go out on, on their bus runs, but that yard where the, where the buses park at night isn't near a substation from the point of view from the, from the electricity provider. Okay, now that fundamentally changes things. The, the grid isn't prepared for that enormous load just coming in in the evening and plugging in. So that is the, the increase in, in capacity that Tom was talking about. And, and I've just given you two examples that like we could talk for the next 14 hours on, uh, on many more examples, but that, that's just what tra transportation electrification looks like from, from the view of the grid. So Tom Dietrich, I'm interested in your thoughts then on what that implies for utilities and the future of the utility. When you think about some of the points Tom Rand was just making in terms of utilities tend to be intrinsically risk averse. And sometimes for good reasons, they have to keep the lights on. A grid is a natural monopoly. It doesn't make sense to have lots of grids. You have one grid. And sometimes maybe for not so good reasons, and there's you know, political patronage and utilities get cozy with the regulators and all those kind of things. And yet they're going to play this absolutely crucial role in the energy transition, as you say, because we're going to be electrifying everything and putting very different kinds of demands on the grid in the future. I thought an interesting suggestion from you there, Tom, around about kind of regulation and maybe regulators need to think about utilities in different ways, allow them to take more risks and so on. What's your view, Tom Dietrich? How do you think we can create that environment that is conducive to getting that kind of change in the electricity system that we really need? I think that there are two uh, issues that, that are really worth 
thinking deeply about. But the first one really has to do with the, the regulatory model that uh, is employed uh, around the, the globe. And I'll use a US example. Uh, re regulation is done at a state level for, for uh, historical reasons and, and practical reasons. But uh, how do you really get interstate transmission lines in place? If you do have an enormous wind farm in rural Texas or Nevada, but, but uh, trying to transmit that power across state lines to a population center in Southern California, for example, is a very, very difficult uh, uh, problem to solve, uh, sometimes for practical reasons, environmental considerations, but many times just because every set of rules is different, not only by state, but oftentimes by county to be able to build that. So it's gonna change, take a change in, in the regulatory model in terms of how that, that works. And even at a, at a much more local level where the problem needs to be solved, the, the uh, regulatory models are generally built around a CapEx kind of mindset. A, in order for us to get paid as a utility, you need to spend money so you can get a return on that capital employed. And from a regulator perspective, let's make sure we, we make sure that that return is, is fair and reasonable and, and we've thoroughly inspected the, uh, the, the, the use of that capital. And, and that all made sense a while ago. But if you think about technologies available today, cloud computing, for example, where you aren't really spending CapEx because that's already in some giant data center built by somebody who specializes in that with much better cybersecurity than you would ever have as an individual utility. How can you get paid for that in the regulatory model? So you have to be able to get SaaS, software as a service, integrated into the regulatory model and be able to do that. And do that fairly, equitably, efficiently, you know, all of the, the, the right metrics on it. But that's, that's a, a change in the, in the regulatory model that is required. So that, call that topic one. Topic two that I would point out is I don't think that public monies thinking about that generally from a utility perspective, although some utilities are privately owned, but the, the notion of public-private partnerships is really what I'm trying to draw out. I don't think that all of the needs of the future grid are solved only from the utility standpoint. I think that there will be local storage. I think there will be rooftop solar. I think that there will be the ways to, to control this, this impossibly complicated bit of machinery known as the grid and that's going to take public and private money to do it. It's going to take some, some uh, real visibility and optimization to get supply and demand balanced out, making sure that you can move charge from that battery that's in Tom Rand's garage into to my garage at the right time so that you don't have to fire up another uh, gas plant to be able to supply grid uh, electricity. So that notion of being able to control this grid is going to take public and private uh, thought process and money. Uh, and that is, is the second key meta phase. If I stay out of technology just for, for one moment, the technology is available to be able to do these things. We need to get regulatory models lined up and, and appropriate so that we do get the results we want economically and uh, socially, but also public and private money are, are the two things I think are really important to think through. Tom's book, uh, I'll give a plug for it, starts to, to get to exactly that, that, that very pragmatic approach to get the left and right, for lack of a better term, pulled together is, is really the thought process I think is absolutely required to make this whole thing work. And just to make sure we get that plug absolutely right, Tom, Rand, what's the title of that book again? Uh, the Case for Climate Capitalism's Economic Solutions for a Planet in Crisis. So 
Thinking about climate capitalism then, something I wanted to get into was the issue of capital flowing into the clean tech sector, into solutions for climate change. You're saying, Tom Rand, you still think movement's too slow, businesses are not acting decisively enough to address the issue. On the other hand, it does feel like there's been a huge change in the investment climate really just in the past few years when you think about all the um, investment institutions lining up for net zero goals, for instance, when you think about all the interest in ESG investing in general and kind of climate-focused investing in particular, seems like there's a lot of capital now available to finance climate solutions. How is that changing the industry and what issues does that raise? Yeah, really. Yeah. Things have fundamentally changed in, in three years. I tell the team at Arcturn, you know, the, the juniors, it wasn't always like this, folks. It was lonely in clean tech even three or four years ago. There were maybe five funds in North America that, that invested in the space. There's 80 now. I mean, you've got giant hedge funds, you know, Kotu and Tiger, who, as far as I can tell, were never climate hawks, but they're at the table, you know, with a lot of capital. Um, and so I think what's interesting there, you know, when you have non-climate hawks moving aggressively to take positions you know, they need, a, they need a horse in the low carbon race. They haven't got any. And so they're moving very quickly to have a horse in that race, which A, means that they see this transition as now being inevitable. It's a matter of pace, but it's inevitable, right? So you can be a bull on clean tech. I think that, that's pretty clear. Will it happen fast enough to resolve climate? That's a separate issue. But when a non-climate investor is starting to come to the table and are writing very big checks, a few things happen, right? I mean, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That the, you know, GM is building a truck marketed at Texas. And it ain't about climate. It's about your house and about your truck. And, you know. and so when those things begin to happen, it's a business proposition. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. On the demand side, same thing. I mean, look, three or four years ago, if you had a clean tech solution, you had an industrial process that was more efficient or whatever, you'd have to have a 12-month payback for anybody to be even interested in looking at you. And now there are people moving to retrofit buildings. I mean, CapReed is a big real estate company up here in Canada. They're targeting every single building in their portfolio to be net zero. They're calculating what they need to do to get there and taking it out of their capital budgets because they view it as long-term long strategic importance. So that's a change of budgets, which is really a change of mindset in the CFO. So the demand side, I think, is robust now. I think people have woken up to this. And if you give them a solution that works and you know they'll take some tech risk, not much, but if it works and it's at least even on the money, they'll do it. So capital pouring in, stronger demand side tells me this is not a bubble. This is a long, there's a foundation for this sector on the demand side. Um, and all that's very, very healthy. I think so the tech downdraft, the tech headwinds, we feel, everyone feels it, but I think clean tech is going to bounce right back because of that fundamental demand driver. People need solutions. And right now it's the leaders in the market, but the laggards are coming too because they're going to be judged on their stock price. They're going to be judged even in terms of the big five banks up here. You know, when they lend out money, there's two tiers. And you know, do you have a credible net zero plan? If you don't, you have this interest rate. If you do, you have this interest rate. So there's going to start to be some interaction with the financial, you know, wiring the big banks as well. So I think that triumvirate, you know, the, the big financial players, the demand side and the capital pouring to solutions increases optionality, increases the pace of change. Um, it is, however, a separate question as to whether or not you can be a bull on, on, on climate, right? You know, Vaclav Schmil has pointed out time and time again that you can have a better, faster, cheaper solution on energy. The nature of infrastructure means it's going to take you 50 years to get it done. And we don't have 50 years. We got 15 or 20. So it's good to see this, mar these, this market activity. It's good to see the private sector at the table in ways they weren't three years ago. But we still need to think of intelligent ways to short circuit 
what's delaying the rollout. So you have all the capital in the world, but as you say, you can't push on a string. You have to enable utilities and everybody else to, to increase the demand under a, a robust, decent economic circumstances to, to deploy these kinds of things at a pace the market wouldn't do otherwise. That's the challenge. Right. And so that's where the role of policy really comes in. That's where policy comes in. Yeah. You, you, so I, I would differentiate between you know, political radicalism and economic radicalism, right? I don't think it's economically radical to say incrementalism doesn't do. We have to rewire our entire global economy inside 15, 20 years. We've got to push capital into the market. We've got to be willing to make mistakes. We've got to unleash the regulators. We've got to give some freedom of movement to the utilities. Those are economically radical kinds of decisions you know, from, from business as usual. But it's not politically radical. There's nothing left or right about what I just said. And that's where I think the business community is beginning to sort of step up. They're, di they're, they're differentiating an acceptance of economic intervention to some extent and not tying it to some political agenda of the left or the right. It's simply a pragmatic tool to solve a difficult problem. Um, and the more people see it that way, the better. I, I think that it, it is absolutely a policy that that uh, we've got to push. There's a there's a business reality associated with it, and there is the the notion of making it easy. I, I, at the risk of you know be, being a wet blanket, I'm going to put my my CEO hat on here for the moment. But trying to make sure you understand how to to do this in a responsible way from a reporting point of view uh, is, is really, it's, it's difficult. It really is. There are so many different frameworks that people want you to, uh, to, to report under, and they're all slightly different. How you keep track of that, how you do it efficiently, how you manage it so that you don't end up with all of the, the bad behaviors that are starting to get smoked out today. The, the notion of greenwashing is really what I'm, I'm talking about. I think having a, a standard way of reporting it, dealing with it, and, and keep in score so that you know how to, to apply those two different interest rates that, that Tom just, just talked about, because you, you can have a little bit of the Wild West today. And I think we're, we're starting to, to figure out how to do that as a business community and as, as a policy community. But uh, the faster we can get there, the more you can reward the winners and you can pull the laggards along to, to really accelerate the process as much as possible. You can get another excuse off the table is really what I'm pointing to. Right now, the business community has enormous degrees of freedom in terms of how we collectively decide to build a low carbon economy in a time frame that's relevant to climate risk, right? It's, the ball is in our court and the degrees of freedom are profound. Those degrees of freedom will shrink over time as the public gets more and more scared of this thing, right? It's going to be much more regulation by diktat, you know, and it can get quite extreme, right? We've seen how a populist can make, you know, use of someone's fears. Uh, we've seen that very recently, right? You know, when bread is 20 bucks a loaf, uh, you know, populists will take advantage of those fears. And if the business community is not seen to be having stepped up to the plate in good faith to solve this issue, there's a target on the business community's back you know, but whether it's fair or not, right? I mean, Rupert Murdoch's done more to kneecap climate action than anybody else on this planet. And that's how, you know, regular people see the business community, right? Big, bad sharks. They don't differentiate and understand that most business people are good moral people doing their, doing their job day to day. And so the degrees of freedom that we have now, we should take advantage of and be aggressive about it. And, and those who are leading need to pull their laggard friends along and explain to them in hushed tones over brandy and cigar if you do not come along with us and help us solve this problem, 10 or 15 years from now, the fun we have as business leaders in choosing our own destiny and being masters of the universe, 
that is at, is in peril. I mean, that, that that is the nature of an existential risk, that when someone comes to deal with that existential risk and they have the political clout to do it, they're going to take a sledgehammer to it. And so the business community, I think it's in their own interest to take advantage of the degrees of freedom we have, but be legitimately and aggressively at the table and self-policing to some extent uh, that, that we pull the laggards along and we don't fight on on progressive policy, right? The notion of putting a price on carbon is just common sense and it's not a political football. And so I would encourage business leaders to really have that long-term view. If you want to keep playing in your sandbox, you think the rules are going to stay the same, you better get on top of this problem because a populist will come along and change the rules for you and you won't have the degree of freedom you have today in addressing this issue. Yeah, that's really interesting. It does make me think though about, Tom Dietrich, uh, your point about if there is this kind of pressure going to build on business to be seen to be addressing climate as an issue, that presumably creates a lot of incentives for greenwashing. We're also seeing it because of the change in the investment climate and everyone wants to be seen to be acting in the right kind of ways on ESG in general and on climate in particular. Everyone wants to be aligned with the climate movement in one way or another. And as the old joke goes, the most important thing in politics is sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> um, if, you can, uh, if you can appear to be doing something positive for the climate, but not really doing it, then maybe that's the best of all worlds for the business. For, maybe that's the best of all worlds for the businesses that are behaving in that way. How do you stop that? Well, I think that that having a reporting framework which is consistent, uh, that that really is is thoughtful about what are the things that truly do move the needle. It is about reduction of of greenhouse gases. It is about uh, reduction of, of water usage, uh, the most precious resource we have on on the planet. Uh, those are the things that we really need to be be talking about and, and really be thoughtful in, in managing. There, there's got to be. Uh, that the way to uh, to really understand what the reductions would be. If you look at the the lens of of a carbon reduction plan, the, the first I don't know 50 percent, 70 percent, maybe maybe 80 percent, depending on the size or, or or the nature of your business. That stuff is pretty easy to get to, and and you, it's a straightforward idea on how you do it. That that last whatever the percentage would be, 15 percent or so. You've got to take a certain leap uh, and understand really what we we need to do and, and how that would all work. Um, I don't believe in the notion of of uh, you know carbon offsets in terms of the way to meet the goal. It really has has to be about the the ultimate way to get there. And there there are regulatory things you can do. There are taxing things you can do. But it comes down to innovation on the technology side to really make it practical. And that's where I think that we should be aggressively awarding. Uh, and, and deploying capital to, to go figure out how to make it happen. So funds like, like Tom's, uh, as an example, that really are thinking about what are the technologies that we need to be developing today to, to get to those, those really hard to reach places. How do you really manage it? That, those are the things that uh, I think are, are the, the, the holes to plug in the system. And uh, that's what makes it possible. And therefore, you can weed out the bad behaviors that, that lead to uh, to some of the things that just aren't helpful to solve the problem realistically. One of the things that we're discovering as, as capital is deployed on the clean tech side and utilities and corporates are beginning to engage in the demand side is there's some easy stuff to do, as Tom D mentioned, in terms of emissions reductions. There's also easy stuff to do sometimes in terms of, of new technologies, right? Software-driven efficiencies and so on. The heavy lift is always going to be in technologies 
that can change the way infrastructure operates. And that's a tricky thing to do from the, from the venture side. We've, we've, made, we've got 28 companies in our portfolio thus far. Three of them I would describe as those kind of heavy hitters, right? One's a next-gen biofuels play called Woodland. Um, one is a carbon sequestration technology targeting really cement and steel. And, and one is energy storage, HydroStore. So HydroStore builds, you know, five gigawatt hour projects, 200 development in California and, and, and one, in, one in Australia. It's been 12 years to get HydroStore to the point where a utility are signing off-take agreements. I mean, these are big systems in California. They got off-take agreements. We have a banker at Meridium out of Paris that will underwrite the, you know, the half a billion of equity for those projects. It was 10 to 12 years of work to get that company to that point. And it's tricky to thread the needle where you're investing venture type of money, right? So 10 to 100 million bucks, call it. And you're ultimately affecting infrastructure and it's got to be bankable, right? Utilities want bankable 25-year, 50-year power purchase agreements. It's got to be rock solid, engineering, wrap, all the rest of it. It's tricky to thread the needle to figure out how a venture fund can scale technology to the billion dollar point. I think we've cracked that nut with HydroStore. We'll, we'll do it with our, with our two others as well. Um, but those are hard and they take a long time. So it's not like you can invest today and like a software company two years from now be changing an industry. These take a decade to build. And so things that are gonna be available to utilities where they can press a button and say, I want three hydro stores, please, and change the way my grid operates. Those technologies, you'll see them coming 10 years before someone can press the button and order them. So we've gotta be aware of those time lags in the system. And it's great to see a few other venture funds slash infra funds starting to play here uh, and, and being able, so the infrastructure funds kind of going upstream a bit and the venture funds going downstream a bit to be able to sort of fund these companies that are ultimately trying to build 100 million to $2 billion projects. Um, it's hard work, but, but that's where I think the real muscle is. You know, everyone can build software, everyone can build markets for things, but ultimately you've got to be producing energy at scale and movie energy at scale. And that, that's one of, the, one of the tricky pieces, I think. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point. And I was about to make exactly that contrast you've just drawn between the software world and the hardware world in energy and just how different they are. And I guess you could say you look back at what you might think of as the first clean tech boom back sort of 15, 20 years ago, where often kind of people who had software backgrounds came into that with great expectations about what they'd be able to achieve and ended up being disappointed. And not every time they're disappointed, right? I mean, I guess you could say Elon Musk probably was someone who came into the business around that era and he hasn't done too badly. Yeah. And one of the things that, that, Elon and others are, are trying to, and HydroStore is how do you scale by orders of magnitude over a decade? So for example, one of the reasons I think HydroStore is so interesting to use, I mean, they're our leading horse in the race, utility scale storage. They leverage existing robust supply chains. So Baker Hughes equipment from the oil and gas sector, mining techniques to build the underground caverns for the air and the water and so on. Um, you know, it's the, it's the robust, mature companies like an iTron, like a Siemens, like a Baker Hughes that they rely on. So you don't have to build a supply chain from the lithium mine right up to the cell, right up to the manufacturing facility. You know, that's a decade there. So the good news is if you, if you approach innovation from a systems level and the components are robust, well-understood supply chains, takes you 10 years before you're building your first billion dollar facility. But the good news is you can build a hundred of them a year from now, because there's not really any constraints in terms of the supply chain or the expertise or the engineering and so on. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting is that it can scale by orders of magnitude in a decade, which is the kind of scale we need to see to resolve for climate risk, right? We don't have 30 years to wait for modular reactors and all that kind of stuff. I'm all, I'm all for modular reactors. I'm not negative on nuclear, but the notion that's going to get deployed 
on a time frame that matters for you know my kid, it's just not going to happen. And so that's the trick. Infrastructure, but infrastructure that can scale extremely rapidly, leveraging existing supply chains, is another another interesting flavor of, of this um, ecosystem. So I'm afraid we do just about have to leave it there. But before we do, I'm interested to hear your key takeaways really on this issue. I mean, if you were to leave listeners with just one thing that is, in your view, the crucial step that businesses should be taking to make real progress towards climate solutions, what would it be? I mean, Tom Dietrich, maybe start with you. What, what do you think on this? I'll go first. And the way I would sum it up is looking at it through the lens of, of a total picture policy and, and business. We've made more progress in the last five years than we did in the previous 50 or maybe even the previous 100. That, that's great. Um, however, we need to be much more urgent. I'm optimistic about what the future would be, but I would really encourage people to, to look at this through, through a, the lens of, of a much shorter time frame than what people are thinking about. That the top 10% of, of uh, you know, designing a grid for, for the top 10% use cases drives 40% of the cost. There's ways to address that. That, that don't take uh, brand new technologies. Let's get on that now and, and cut that peak off. Let's not let the enemy be the perfect of, of the, the good, but don't use that as an excuse to, to be complacent and do nothing. Apply consistent rules and, and let's get on with it, guys. Let's just get on with it. Uh, and uh, infrastructure does take a long time. This is a big ship that turns slowly. We gotta start turning it much faster. So let's lean on that rudder. That would be the message and, and the summary that I would walk away with today. And Tom Rand, what about you? Couldn't agree more. I, I would just very, very quickly say to sort of tap whatever patriotic fervor we may have in our respective nations. The next great geopolitical battle uh, is going to be about supply uh, of clean energy technologies. Um, there are countries positioning for that. China already has. They own the solar space. They're trying hard for the battery space. I often argue up here in Canada, it, our own economic self-interest uh, dovetails with our environmental aspirations to bring together two disparate groups in exporting clean energy technology to the rest of the world and affecting the 98% of emissions that is outside our own country. So thinking about this from an economic strategic perspective, being aggressive, allowing your politicians and encouraging them to be aggressive about supporting winners, getting winners into the market is in your own economic self-interest over the long term and it's in your own national security interests over the long term. So it's another way to think about um, ways to get people who may not be a climate hawk uh, into acting the same way a climate hawk would. And Ed, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Uh, so, so you're 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 doing exactly what what Tom just mentioned. Is is thank you for giving us the platform to uh, to discuss the issues. I truly appreciate being here. Well, look, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks very much uh, for coming in and talking to us today. It's been fantastic talking to you. Very much enjoyed it. Appreciate the opportunity. As Tom says, the energy system is a big ship that turns slowly. Infrastructure takes time to develop, but the technology does exist to create and maintain smart, efficient, renewable energy systems all over the world. Thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about Arctron, you can visit itron.com and you can find out more about Arctron Ventures at arctronventures.com. Bye for now.